it's reasonable to expect that you should be able to generate 10 to 15% of your revenues at a distance from a, from a large market. The, the farther you get from a culture perspective and maybe even from a time zone perspective, the more relevant um, that local presence becomes. But I think that you can actually get pretty far without having to make that commitment. podcast that helps you open and thrive in foreign markets. This is Steve here, your host speaking. In times of business uncertainty, should you really expand internationally? It is a very tempting thought to stop investing and focusing on optimizing your cash cow, aka your mature market, right? I mean, why would you keep pouring money on a market that brings what? Close to 0% of revenue? Well, if that is a question on your mind right now, you will love listening to Zoltan Vardy. After a 30-year career going from international corporate roles to entrepreneur, he is now startup mentor and founder of The Lounge Code and chairman at Antavo. He shares how he sees the best way to navigate these tough times while keeping expansion efforts on. Hi, Zoltan. Thank you so much for coming here on the International Corner Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Defend. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation with you today. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm very looking forward to speak about how you can expand internationally, especially right now in times of, I would say, business uncertainty. It's a little bit of a tough economic climate we're going through right now. Uh, margins are tighter. <laughs> less and less deals, you know, are, are coming in. So it's always about maximizing uh, the conversion rates. But perhaps before digging yeah. into today's matter, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and why you think your experience can be relevant for this podcast? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I am a startup mentor. I work with uh, B2B tech startup founders to help them sell and market to enterprise customers. Uh, by applying a sales and marketing blueprint I created called the Launch Code. And I, I think my approach is unique in, in two ways. The first is that uh, it combines basically what is effectively 20 years of large corporate sales experience that I've accumulated over the course of my career. Um, so I understand sort of the structure and the process and all that elements of, of selling, especially in the B2B space. Um, but I've also been an entrepreneur. I've been a founder. I've been an angel investor and have had successful exits um, in, in both capacities. And so I understand mm -hmm. the execution focus that's required of, of entrepreneurs to sell. So kind of combining those two mindsets is, I think, a pretty unique approach. And the other thing which I think is most relevant for our conversation today is everything I've just talked about, I've done on a global scale. So mm -hmm. kind of in my last big corporate job, I was senior vice president of global sales for NBC Universal International based out of London, overseeing $150 million business in 30 countries. Mm -hmm. So anything between the Philippines and Mexico I covered, so I got a good insight into you know what it means to sell into multiple markets. And in fact, over the course of my own entrepreneurial experience, I've launched businesses in about 12 countries. So I think I've got a good insight into what it takes to actually build a successful global business. Mm, amazing. Indeed, you do have uh, quite uh, the experience about like global expansion. So I do have a concept uh, for everyone. It's called the icebreaker at the beginning. So just imagine you have uh -huh. a dice, pick a number between one and six, and I will read you a question, I guess. All right, let's try number four. 
Number four, all right. So who is a person that inspires you and why? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I think that the person that has inspired me most in my career is one of my first bosses, mm -hmm. um, a guy named Dan Lovinger, um, who I used to work for back in the mid-90s when I was at Cartoon Network, actually responsible for for building uh, Cartoon Network's uh, local operations across Central and Eastern Europe. And he actually introduced me to, I think, something that that fundamentally changed my entire approach to to my career, which is that, you know, I grew up in a family of academics. Uh, most of my parents were professors, uh, you know, it was a very learned <laughs> environment, but there was a particularly uh, negative view of, of commercial activities and selling. Uh -huh. And so I was sort of taught as a child that, you know, selling is something that you kind of don't really want to do because that's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started working with Dan that he made me realize that, in fact, the that wasn't true. Selling was about actually solving somebody's problem and, and who doesn't want to help other people's uh, solve other people's problems. And, and that fundamental shift in thinking influenced my entire view of selling and ultimately led me to more and more senior roles in sales and, and basically to become effectively somebody who sold over $2 billion worth of business over the course of my, my 30 year career. So, so that's somebody who inspired me and who I've thought of a lot over, over the years. Ironically, many years later, when I worked, moved to NBC, um, he was working for NBC in the United States. He's a very senior executive there now. And so, uh, our paths crossed again, but I remember back in the <laughs> 90s, this was a, uh, this was a, a turning point for me. This is amazing. And, and I, I think it's just a great example of how bosses, managers can impact people they are working with. So great example. All right. Mm -hmm. To deep dive a little bit more into today's matter and, and global expansion, uh, as I said, you know, like a little bit tougher economic climate that we're going through right now. How would you advise a startup to to start expanding right now, I would say? And would you even advise it or would you just say, yeah, maybe just focus on your mature market, on your cash cow right now and wait a little bit? So, you know, I think obviously that what's going on in the last sort of eight, 12 months, I would say, is is clearly a negative uh, trend in terms of B2B selling and B2B startups. Uh, you know, decisions are much slower. Budgets are much tighter. Uh, sales cycles are a lot longer. So, so there's a lot more challenge uh, that you have to overcome. Having said that, you know, the companies that I work with and I support because they are tech startups are global by nature. Right. They're, that's that's in their DNA. So to tell a startup, well, look, uh, you know, you guys should hold off on, on on this because, you know, it's it's a it's a difficult environment would be going against the, the very nature of startup world, which is basically to expand and scale internationally. And so for that reason, I would advise a startup to uh, to continue their plans to internationally expand and go into new markets, but to do it maybe in a slightly more um, structured and, and careful way. Uh, what I mean by that is you know, international expansion by nature is full of risk, right? Because you're going into unknown territories, you're, 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 uh, you're rowing into unknown waters. And so, you know, you already have to accept the fact that there's gonna be a lot of, uh, you know, uncertain turns and twists in your, in your planning. Having said that, though, if you are, if you're structured enough in your planning to say, okay, these are the parameters that are defining the markets I want to go into, um, we seem to fit those parameters, I would encourage them to pick three, which is kind of my favorite number, you know, mm -hmm. pick, three number pick three markets, see where your product offering and your value proposition resonates most, and then double down on the markets that seem to be getting more traction and let go of the markets that don't really support that, uh, your, your proposition. That in itself is, it's not revolutionary. It's not like it's some, you know, secret, uh, 
international expansion button you, that you push, but actually what it does is it, it focuses your efforts on where you're most likely to succeed. And I think that's really important in, in times of, of difficulty. Could we perhaps dig a little bit into that? You said that you would still advise to go for it, to pick three markets. How would you go about it though? Because same, right? Like small structure. So if you want to try and, and see whether or not one of these three markets are a good fit for you, what's the best way to go about it? Do you have like one person testing the water for the three markets, three people, one each? Like what's your take on that? Well, a lot of the, this depends on this, the stage of development for the business. If it's a if it's still a founder led business in the sense that the founder is very much on the front line selling and marketing and, and building the business, then I would encourage the founder to take oversight of any international expansion plans because the reality is you can't uh, you can't delegate something that important uh, to to somebody who doesn't who doesn't understand the very nature and the DNA of the business. Uh, I think there's three steps, right? The first step is research, right? So looking at what the potential of a specific market is. Um, looking at the competitive landscape, um, looking at your level of accessibility. Um, you know, do you have an existing network in that market? Do you have some reason to believe that you'd be stronger in that position in that market because of language knowledge or, or, or background and history? And and, uh, and making that judgment. And at this stage, of course, there's no perfect answer, right? There's no there's no perfect uh, set of parameters that's going to say yes, this market is the absolute one we need to be in, mm-hmm. and you know everything is going to prove that we're going to be successful there. It's a matter of of testing and reiterate and 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 iterating and and trial and error and once you start down that path what you'll actually find is generally of the three markets that you choose one will by nature start to evolve more quickly you'll be building more local relationships you're going to get more traction uh, one will probably fall by the wayside and one will be kind of in that middle uh, sort of range that that could work could not work ultimately which one you double down on and how much you double down on it is going to depend, frankly, on your resources, right? How much money do you have? How many people do you have? What, what do you have at your, in your arsenal? And, and in terms of and your alternatives, right? What are the, you know, if it's not here, then, then what is the alternative? Is it staking in your home market? Is it, is it trying another market? That's, it's kind of the balance of those two things that's going to really drive, I think, the decision. Mm. All right. So you said uh, you talked about like a few, I would say, steps to undertake. You said, well, the first one is research phase. Like what, what are the other ones for you? Yeah. So once you've done the research and you've identified uh, the, the, the three markets that you want to really dig into, then it's your job to start building insights and, and getting information about the potential partnerships and, and, and people and clients that you can attack in that market. It, it starts with you know, visiting the market, going to events at the market, um, getting a lay of the land, as they say. And sometimes you're using your existing, existing contacts, you're sometimes generating new ones, but you're basically getting sort of a lay of the land. And your goal for this process to what I would say, identify your top 10 targets um, for that particular market. Now, those targets could be direct customers, if you have a direct uh, you know, customer relationship type of business, it could be looking at partners or partnerships uh, of companies or individuals who could represent you in that market. And then ultimately finding that that list of kind of top 10 companies or partners that you want to do business with. And then the third piece is all about execution, right? So you have to, you know, you have to go about executing, uh, finding that first paying customer, finding that first deal with a partner. And once you have those elements in place, 
that's when it becomes a question of, you know, do we really go deep into the market? Do we establish a local presence? Um, you know, do we do we start hiring local people? Does the founder believe that it's a big enough opportunity for them to move there, or at least one of the founders move there and to, to, to take part in person in the marketplace? Those are kind of all the the offshoots of this three step process of of researching, of of digging in, and ultimately closing your first few deals. All right. So, okay. So you mentioned basically like researching the competitive landscape, etc. Really like the key characteristics, and then uh, building insights and trying to get, as you said, like your top ten targets, whether they're being partners or customer. I mean, potential customers that could be a great fit in the, the target market, and then uh, actually like deep diving and hopefully closing the first sales to decide whether or not uh, you should move forward and focus on this market only. Then. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think you touched on, on one of the key insights that I've gained over the course of having built, you know, uh, uh, so many businesses on a local level, but also worked with so many business to business tech founders across Europe is that one of the mistakes a lot of companies will make is they'll kind of, it's actually ironic, they make kind of two, one of two mistakes, either they over plan, or they do zero planning. Mm. And I think both are in, both are equally uh, dangerous. Over planning means that you sit there, you know, by uh, in front of an Excel and and create you know these these theoretical um, scenarios based on you know a tremendous number of assumptions that are based purely on desks research or, or some sort of you know initial understanding of what the market is, uh, and then you basically are afraid to actually execute because you know the the Excel doesn't fit the the, the picture that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. On the other end is when you say, well, you know, I, my mother's friend's cousin you know lives in London, and, and I'm going to go there <laughs> because that seems like a, a per perfectly reasonable reason, you know place to start, right? So it's kind of this this two extremes. What I believe you need to do is to have enough planning so that you establish the guidelines or the parameters of your of your market entry, but give yourself the the opportunity to adjust your ex your plan as you execute. Because as we know, there's no perfect solution, right? I mean, the, the world doesn't work that way. So you're going to go in there, you're going to find that certain uh, conversations you have are extremely fruitful, some other are going to be extremely uh, uh, negative, and, and you're going to have to adjust your strategy to meet the, the feedback that you're getting from the market. And the one thing I would avoid at all costs is putting a ton of resources into a market before you've identified whether there's actually opportunity there. And that's okay. Uh, so actually I have two points on that. I was going to ask you, what would you recommend then? Because let's say, let's take a scenario. I I can only dedicate as a founder, like one resource to do this initial, I would say a uh, groundwork. Is that enough to cover the discovery of three markets and how long should I spend uh, on, on trying to say, okay, this is the right market or this is not before making up my mind? Well, let me answer that question by taking you through a very specific example. So one of the companies that I work with closely, I'm actually chairman of the company, a company called Ontavo. It's a uh, B2B SaaS uh, technology platform, basically creates uh, uh, loyalty programs for blue chip customers around the world. And so Ontavo's journey is really interesting. It started out in Hungary, uh, uh, quickly expanded to the UK, and then has since grown into you know a company with literally 50 plus customers across four continents, uh, the United States, Europe. Asia and, and part of Latin America. And so what we experienced there is that we started out with kind of a, a small presence in individual markets. And I'll, I'll use the U.S. as a great example because that's also the, comp the, the market that so many European startups really want to break into, right? Yeah, it's the kind absolutely. of the golden egg, uh, so to speak. And so, for instance, there, what we found is that by actually having one person take responsibility for the U.S. market entry, we were able to close um, about six or seven really good quality deals mm. just by 
flying into the market, developing the relationships, finding a, a local Im- implementation partner, doing a little bit of inbound marketing to, to you know, raise awareness and boost the top of the funnel. And so we were able to actually create that presence um, over the course of about 18 months. And uh, after that, we realized that you know, now we're at the stage where actually we could start devoting some resources because there's enough traction there, first of all, from a financial perspective mm-hmm. um, to, to fund some of this expansion. And the other is you're not going in blind, right? You've got some, some local examples, case studies, partnerships, things that, that, that give you that sort of credibility uh, in, a, in a new market, which is so, so critical for a startup to have, right? That's the, biggest op- that's the biggest obstacle to international expansion, right? Lack of credibility and lack of reach. Absolutely. And so going into that market, um, getting your feet wet, and then putting additional resources, maybe hiring a couple of people, maybe a customer success person, or maybe a marketing partnership person. Um, and then ultimately, you know, if the business grows to that level, then you can find that, um, that actually it rewards having some full-time people on the ground, you know, at a more senior level. So, uh, so, so an alternative, just to show you the other side of the coin mm-hmm. is Asia, where, where the company had managed to, uh, ironically during COVID when, when suddenly personal in-person selling was no longer possible and no longer expected, was able to break into the Asian market to, to, uh, create some partnerships and some, some local, uh, client relationships and close a couple of deals. And then mm-hmm. we basically jumped in and opened an office in Singapore, opened um, an office in Sydney and, and started investing into the market. And in retrospect, um, the, the learning there was that we probably jumped in too quickly because okay. there, there were only a couple of clients and, you know, some of these clients, as you well know, sometimes you were get a bit lucky. You know, sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time. But but we had thought we were farther along in the marketplace than we really were. And so we actually made the decision to pull back from those markets because we realized that, in fact, the the resources of the company were better devoted to uh, to pushing the success that we had in the U.S. rather than spreading it out over over multiple regions of the world. Um, and and so far, the decision is, has turned out to be the right one. Okay, so that's actually interesting. You're saying, for instance, for the U.S., you, you mentioned 18 months before actually getting someone on the ground. So for you, it could be quite long, I would say, right, that you decide to actually explore things before you commit to more resources on the ground. Yeah, I think that that's the takeaway for me, right? It's 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 to make sure that you're careful about about not about reading the signs, you know, the tea leaves uh, well enough, right? So you're seeing that you've got the right type of customers coming on a recurring basis. You know, the, the deal flow is is good. That the sales cycle is relatively reasonable, um, versus having something come in suddenly, you know, and then have a big gap and then invest a bunch of resources into building the market without really having that traction first. So, so yeah, look, it, it's. I mean, you know, we obviously talk about this in retrospect because you mm. see the the the. the, the um, I could say that you know part of international expansion is that you always see much clearer ret- retroactively when of course of you, right it's 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 you know you can connect the dots easier but I think you know I don't think anybody goes into the market saying oh this is a really stupid decision and we're going to be out of here in twelve months you know nobody that nobody says that they say okay let's do it and we're going to build the business and it's going to be successful and so on but then life happens right and I think that's where you have to be flexible um, and you have to be uh, reactive to what's you what you're experiencing on the ground and and. Um, and you know it's all a very big question. You know, what's the point at which you pull the pull the plug? Mm-hmm. And that's, the that's example that you mentioned about the U.S. market is interesting because it's actually on another continent. If you're sitting, let's say, in EMEA, whatsoever, so you decided to go with it with basically selling remotely, right? And you guys were doing some back and forth 
then uh, and uh, and you manage to get the first deals in without actually having a presence on the ground. That's correct, and and I think one of the one of the most interesting uh, insights that I gained from from this whole experience is that. Uh, when COVID hit in the spring of 2020, you know, the world was ending, right? And everybody was freaking out about what's going to happen. And the company had been growing perfectly fine. Um, but actually, COVID created the spark to basically 3x the growth, 3x growth for the following 12 to 18 months for the simple reason that there was a bit of a change in the in the marketplace. Loyalty, which is the area that Antab was president in, suddenly became much more relevant because companies customers weren't going in store. So they, they you know the companies needed to build that relationship with the, their customers in an online space. And so their technology was enabling that. That's mm -hmm. one thing. The other thing though is that the expectation of in-person sales ceased. Mm -hmm. And and as a result, you know, the whole concept of closing deals without actually meeting somebody in person which used to be absurd, became standard practice. And so the company was able to start building these relationships and closing deals simply by sitting in front of, you know, a screen like we're doing today mm -hmm. and having in long distance conversations. And so that shift actually is, I think, opened up a huge opportunity for companies based in Europe to expand into far off lands like Asia and North America, because there's not necessarily a hundred percent expectation to, to have in person, uh, you know, have an in-person presence. Now it then becomes a question of scale, right? So how, how big can you get with exactly that was going to be my, my question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's a big question and, and, and we're not there yet. So it's difficult for me to tell you mm -hmm. what the right answer is, but I can, I, I can tell you that it's reasonable to expect that you should be able to generate 10 to 15% of your revenues from, from a total market, from a so total business perspective, you can you know generate 10 to 15% of your revenues at a distance from a, from a large market. So let's say 10 to 15% from Asia and 10 to 15% in North America, if, if you're thinking of yourself as a European company. I think if you want to get bigger than that, you have to build a local uh, presence for the simple reason that as you get more and more customers, you get more and more demands for on-site you know, service, customer success, time zones, um, you know, questions of credibility. Are you going to be there when I have a problem? You know, all of these sort of soft things that are going to impact whether or not a company is going to be prepared to do business with you as a supplier um, become more relevant. And, and, you know, you have to answer those questions uh, credibly. But does this mean that at this time, if we take the example of the, of the U.S. market, for the first, I would say, first deals in, you don't have any customer supports on, let's say, I don't know, uh, ET or PT uh, uh, time zones, or uh, like how like how did you guys deal with it? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you can you can do that obviously from a distance, and and you know, the time zones a, a painful one. As it relates to the U.S., though, that's one of the, I think the the interesting insights is is I think for a European company, if if they're not present in the U.S., then the Pacific coast time zone basically falls out because mm -hmm. it's, that eight to nine hours, I think is just too much to really manage realistically. You mm -hmm. know, the Eastern time zone, especially if the UK, that's five hours, mm -hmm. you know, that's, you know, that's manageable. I think mm -hmm. it's not ideal, but it's manageable. Um, so, so I think the, the East coast is probably where of the United States is where you're more likely to find potential opportunities than the West coast for the reasons that I just described. Having said that, you know, I, I don't think that there's, um, an obstacle to building business, you know, from a distance across the entire continent, it just becomes a question of how much are you prepared to risk and, 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 you know, what are the difficulties of doing business that you have to overcome? And do you believe that it's the case for every market that you could virtually 
expand at least at the start selling re remotely whatever the market you're trying to get in by that i'm also thinking about maybe a little bit more culturally distant market like india or maybe some of the african countries yeah so so it's funny i just recently had a conversation with one of my clients they're in the ad tech space and they're in the midst of, of expanding um from central and eastern europe into the rest of the world and mm -hmm. and they found a lot of interest in dubai Oh, right. um, for their for their product, mm -hmm. and so you know, one of the conclusions they came to is that, for instance, the Middle East is a is a region that uh, that is most likely going to require a local presence, or certainly a very strong local partner who's going to represent the company to potential customers and partners there. Um, you know, I'm not an expert in India by any means, but I would imagine India is another example where you probably have to have um, somebody local. I think. The, the farther you get from a culture perspective and maybe even from a time zone perspective, the more relevant um, that local presence uh, uh, becomes. Uh, you know, if you're thinking about it from a, let's say, a, a European or let's say, you know, big five markets of Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a local presence is good. But I also think that you can do it in staged uh, steps, right? Mm -hmm. It's not an all or nothing situation. It's not like you have to move to France to do business in France. Mm -hmm. Obviously, language becomes important. Um, you know, your ability to reach out to people in their local language is a critical element. Um, but I think that you can actually get pretty far without having to make that commitment. If you're willing after that initial phase to invest further in the business, then I think that that becomes a, a requirement, but it's not necessary at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Got it. I, yeah, I think I, I also agree with you that because of what happened with COVID, like people are definitely more open to it. It's just at some point you need to get to a point, I would say internally, where you're willing to invest more if you really want to scale, I would say, uh, uh, what's what's happening in the in the targeting country. Yeah, I think there are two things actually that help you accelerate that localization. Mm -hmm. The first is, uh, if you think about it, over the course of business, obviously, um, an overwhelming majority of your contact with potential customers is through email and phone or, or, or video, right? That's, mm -hmm. I would say, at least 80% of the, 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 the communication. There are points, of course, where a personal meeting is important, but a great way to create that presence in a local market uh, through a personal touch is just organizing events locally, right? So if, mm -hmm. you, if you organize an event for your potential customers, so one of the things we do at Ontavo is actually organize breakfasts uh, in London, for instance, we have an office in London okay. and we have companies, uh, you know, show up and customers show up for where we know offer some, you know, some, some value. There's a big customer loyalty report that Intavo does every year, which has become an industry standard. We present that to these customers. We get enough opportunity to, to engage with our, with our chief marketing officer. And so, you know, there's a lot of engagement that way. And, you know, if you think about it, if you can get in a room with somebody for two hours and you actually add value and then you kind of build the relationship, that's a great way to create some, some, you know, some sense of local presence without necessarily having to That's true. Know, move your entire organization. But here. but you can uh, but you can only do that if you have, I would say, first clients. I mean, first traction. Otherwise, this is kind of difficult to make it happen. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. And, mm. and and again, it's a it's a it's a nice step in the direction of what I talked about, where you mm -hmm. get those first clients, you get that you get your feet wet, and then you, you build on top of that. Uh, the other thing I would say is is partnerships. Um, I, I referred to this earlier, uh, I think it bears repeating, you know, the two biggest obstacles for international expansion for a startup is a lack of credibility and a lack of reach, right? Um, companies have a difficult time doing business with companies that they don't believe are going to be around in, you know, through two years time, or, or they don't necessarily come from that environment or, or have that, you know, that, that sort of um, accessibility that, that you'd, you'd want. So I think that having a partner in the ground locally is going to be a, a big step in that direction. And, mm -hmm. and I've kind of identified three different, different types of partners that are, are relevant. Uh, the, the distributors, right? They're the companies that basically sell your product or service alongside 
other shop product or services. Sometimes they're packaged together, so one plus one equals three, and so you have an opportunity to tap into their their network and their and their 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 you know, channel. Mm-hmm. The other are what I call aggregators. Aggregators are companies that basically or organizations that collect large numbers of your potential customers in one place and you can do business with them and then they can resell you to their mass customers. So it, the agency world is very typical, right? So marketing mm-hmm. agencies will represent multiple companies, um, uh, you know, towards, you know, suppliers in the media and the marketing space um, or trade organizations, right? The National Association of Automotive Manufacturers in, you know, Switzerland, whatever, or, or that equivalent in, you know, in whatever a country. So if you can get into those kind of companies and, and create a relationship with them, that gives you a gateway to a lot of different customers. Mm-hmm. And the third is the, the agent, right? The agent is effectively either an individual or a company who effectively represents you exclusively in that market, or I should, or, or should say, ex- or you use them exclusively in that market and basically they are your your extended arm and they're basically on the ground you know they're they're building the relationships that agent relationship could be part-time to start it could turn into full-time later it could be you know arm's length you know there's also different structures but Mm -hmm. these kind of three type of of partnerships i think are what any startup should be looking at if they're interested in and expanding in a meaningful way to a new market Mm-hmm. All right. So just to sum it up for uh, our listeners, so you mentioned that ways of accelerating the localization are a, I would say like events. So you mentioned that you guys have done like some breakfast that very interesting. As long as you can provide value and get uh, uh, customers and potential prospects partners around the table, that that could be a good in without actually. Uh, being so much present, I would say, uh, in there and partnerships as well. So in there, like distributors, aggregators and agents could be a good way as, as well for you to look at if you want to localize more the business and go to that next stage, as you mentioned. Absolutely. Uh, another question I have, because we did mention that it, it takes time to get even those first initial like deals in. As you said, you cannot just expect if you want to Uh, launch a market to just be in for 12 months and then expect uh, great success to happen. I mean, of course, sometimes it can, but realistically not. But conversely, when should you tell yourself, okay, now this is time to actually stop because you can't be trying forever, right? Well, that's the that's the uh, proverbial sixty four thousand dollar question in the United <laughs> States. That's the that's the question that's un- unanswerable. Um, Look, I, I don't think there's a formula, right? I think it's going to come down to two things: um, your uh, your resources and your your alternatives, right? I mean, if you've got enough resources to fund an expansion for a longer period, then you're most likely to to give yourself a little bit more time. Um, and the alternatives are, you know, where else could I be investing that money and time and effort? You know, is there another market that's getting, you know, that's taking more traction? Um, And to go back to the earlier example that I used with Antavo, you know, we had a presence both in the U.S. or at least a virtual presence in the U.S. as well as Asia. And, and, and the company made the decision to to step out from a local presence perspective because we still have customers in Asia, but from a local presence perspective from Asia and put those resources in the U.S. And and that was based on a clear understanding of the past, the previous year's you know traction, how many deals were in the pipeline, how realistic would it be to really close something there. So, you know, it's 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 an imperfect science. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that you have to balance all of these different things. Uh, and, and, you know, I can answer this also by just telling you what I always tell, um, you know, founders who find me and say, hey, you know, I've been at this for so long and I'm building my business. And, you know, how, how do I know when to quit? Mm-hmm. And, and my answer is always, you know, when you when you when you want to quit, you'll know. 
it'll just be in your gut, right? I mean, nobody can tell you what your level of persistence is, right? That's something that comes from within. And I think it's the same way with international expansion. Nobody can judge what the perfect level of, of, of commitment is. It's going to be something that's, that's going to result from, from that, just that gut feeling of, of, okay, so we've done our best and we got to move on or, or let's, you know, let's stick it, stick with it for a while. All right. I would say that um, that's very wise. So listen, uh, I would say it's, as you mentioned, a question of anyway, like resources and the alternatives you can, you, you can get. But at the end of the day, as you said, like it's also a personal decision. Like, do you actually feel that it's the right moment to quit, even though you yeah. don't want to quit, but you know, at, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I mean, I think the personal decision is something that I think is under appreciated in the international expansion mm. thinking. Um, you know, I, I've heard, I've heard uh, describe, I've heard international expansion described as it's like doing your business all over again, right? Like you go through the pain of creating something from nothing. You reach exactly. a certain level of traction, exactly. you start thing, and it's like, oh, now I got to do it all over again, right? <laughs> and then, and I think, you know, and I think, I think it really comes down to is the founder or the founding team prepared to go through the pain of international expansion because it's like doing it all over again. And, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, again, that's a question that nobody, there's no exact answer to it, but I would say mm -hmm. that, you know, you have to be prepared to, you know, travel a lot more. You have to be prepared to take late night phone calls. You know, maybe when you want to be having dinner with your family, you're going to be on the phone with, with, with New York. Um, Absolutely. It, could, it also means, it also means, you know, um, the potential of, of moving you yourself and your family to a new country in the interest of the business. You know, there are a lot of personal decisions that you have to make. And I think mm -hmm. you have to be able to prepare yourself for the possibility. And if, and if you're not in it, um, then, then it's probably a good, good decision not to, not to put a lot of resources into it because, you know, as we know, everything, look, broad, broad conclusion, international expansion, everything takes twice as long and costs twice as much. Full stop. That's, <laughs> that's for sure. So, so, so well, that's for sure. <laughs> no, but I mean, a hundred percent agree with you there. Uh, it takes time, it takes money and, What's okay? What I'm uh, hearing a lot right now, like talking to different companies, is that again, times of uncertainty, really tough economic climate, and even the mature market right now can be a little bit tough to to navigate through. So I would say the trend is that we we are tempted to think, okay, should I focus on my cash cow? Like, should I focus on my mature market and maybe? drop or at least pause any other further development until I get more money to invest in? What's your take on that? You know, I think it, it goes back to my original thought, which is that, you know, I don't think as a startup business, you can afford to just pretend that the rest of the world doesn't work, uh, or I'm sorry, it exists. You know, you, you have to maintain that sense of international scope and scale and, 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 and as part of your overall strategy. I think it just becomes a question of how much time you give yourself and how many resources you have to invest. Sure, there may be a point at which you say, look, we got to put everything on stop because, you know, we're generating 90% of our of our income from one market. So why are we spending, you know, 50% of our resources to cover the other 10%, just mm -hmm. to use simple math, you know, so there's an economic decision there. Um, but I also think that, you know, I'm sure you've heard this so many times, you know, sometimes the big, the big greatest companies are built in, in periods of, of, horrible uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm, if you just look at the list of companies that were launched in like between 2008 and 2010, I lived through that um, as a senior executive. I was CEO for a large broadcasting company in Central Europe and I had to lay off, you know, 30% of the staff and go through this horrible, you know, the ad market, you know, shrunk 30% overnight. So like real hardcore uh, crisis management. 
And during that period of 2008 to 2010, companies like Airbnb and Uber and, you know, all these global powerhouses basically were founded, right? So, so you know, uh, crisis is not necessarily, you know, a bad time to start a business. It just means you have to be smarter about how you use the available resources um, to build your business. Mm, absolutely. And yeah, uh, you, uh, you're right. We, we've heard stories, right, of, uh, of, of huge success companies who've created themselves or built themselves out of very tough, I would say, times. So it can happen, but many more, I would say, will fail during that same period of time. So it's it, it's yeah. about being like cautious, I would say, on those. Yeah. Uh, and, and to that point, I think one of the interesting insights I'm getting is that, you know, in 2021, mm -hmm. that's when the market was incredibly heat, overheated. Mm -hmm. You know, a tremendous amount of money was in being invested into the startup uh, uh, ecosystem. Literally, you know, valuations were just going through the roof. So there was a lot of uh, exuberance, irrational exuberance, as they say, mm -hmm. uh, about the future of tech. And so when 2022 hit and all of a sudden somebody pulled the, you know, the brakes and, you know, valuations dropped and, and or I should say, you know, money dried up. You know, I think you have a lot of companies now that raised a lot of money at very high valuations who are who are now in a situation where they're going to have a very tough time raising their next round because, you know, the likelihood is the valuation will be much lower than what their previous round was. And economically speaking, that's like the disaster scenario for most investors. And mm -hmm. so I think right now the, the companies that, that are, are safe in, and, and sound in their economic runway, right. The, the mm -hmm. amount of money they have in order, you know, before they break even and actually are, are simultaneously looking to break even on their business and not just burn cash are the ones that are going to survive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies that, that, uh, that threw money around and, uh, and didn't rich appreciate, um, the importance of, of, uh, sound financial decision-making are going to suffer a lot, um, in this time, because the fact is, yeah, deals are slower and being pushed off. And, you know, you know, we're, I mean, my, a lot of my clients, I mean, I basically work with, you know, several dozen B2B tech founders across Europe. And, and that's the general theme, right? Is that decisions are much slower. Uh, deals are deals, you know, handshake deals are pushed off to the fall, right? Absolutely. So it's a classic case of, you know, delaying the, delaying the, the decision. And so, um, yeah, we have to be realistic about what, you know, what, what, what resources you have available. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also why, uh, I would say, especially in the, in the tech scene, for instance, you, you can, or we have seen, I would say waves of layoffs because at some point you need to, you know, be like more like cost conscious and try to understand, okay, like how can I make this happen without burning too much cash? Cause this won't work in your, uh, in your equation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I, I think it's a very telltale sign when, you know, I know Elon Musk got a lot of flack for for his management of Twitter when he took over, but for some reason the company's able to operate with seventy five percent less staff than when he took over the company. So it makes you wonder, you know, how much fat there was in the organization mm -hmm. to start. Um, because you know, I, I'm not a big Twitter user, but it doesn't seem like every day Twitter's down, right? So something's you know, they they, they seem to be solving this business in some way with yeah. literally a quarter of the people. So so I think that uh, that you know, some of those really tough decisions and, and, you know, have to be made and, you know, somebody has to be able to, uh, to take the responsibility for it. So, yeah, so absolutely. yeah, a lot of companies right now are, are having to rethink their business. Mm, absolutely. I, uh, I agree with you on that point. All right. So maybe if that's okay with you, Zoltan, maybe let's move to that last portion of every episode, which is the oops, my bad time. Whoops, my bad. For those who tune in the first time, it's a few minutes at the end for the guests uh, to share a big mistake or a setback that has occurred during one of the expansion journeys so far. Maybe, Sultan, if you have either from your own experience, I would say from the company that you're helping right now, or from one of your clients, something to share that our listeners can learn from, it would be amazing. Uh-huh. 
Well, you know, this is an interesting question. I, I get this asked uh, often and I'm always stumped because I'm not a big guy on regret. Like I don't really, <laughs> you know, if, if I have, if I have like a setback, I sort of am angry about it for two hours and then I move on. So I don't like <laughs> store these, store these, uh, I can these things in my head for food long. Um, having said that, if I, if I have to, you know, come up with some scenario, it actually goes back to, uh, um, to a decision one of my clients had to make. They, they uh, went to, they had a, an opportunity to close a big deal in China. So this is a European company. And the company um, found a partner in China and really saw this as a huge opportunity to enter, obviously, a massive market. And so they, as a requirement of the deal, had to create a local subsidiary in China. Um, they had to you know, go through you know, kind of a legal and, and financial process to, to prepare themselves for that. And what happened is they ended up serving this customer in China and found out that in principle they had agreed but in fact there were a gazillion things that actually hadn't been clarified in the relationship mm -hmm. and so managing the process dealing with the cultural differences between the chinese company and the european company became extremely large and it wasn't it was about 12 you know 18 months later that they realized that they had made a big mistake because they basically entered the market you know, went through the the pain of creating a local subsidiary yeah. and effectively to service one client, and which turned out to be an unsuccessful relationship. And so oh. now they've had to re you know, uh, step back. And so I think again, the lesson there is, um, you know, you have to be very careful that you don't overstate the importance of having like a single customer in a new market, right? Mm. So you know, start building your presence in the market, get some more traction, make sure that what you're offering is relevant to multiple people. And and then really commit full because because you're going to find yourself uh, uh, you know having backtrack and in, you know other than wasting time which of course is probably the most valuable resource for any early stage company mm -hmm. you're also wasting money and so that's uh, that's something that I think is a good lesson to take away from this for for everyone definitely so uh, it's good to take your time and 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 make sure that every step of the way you you get you know some like metrics that also hold you accountable to make sure that if you go to the next step the the next stage it's for a valid reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Zoltan, for all your insights today. I will also, you know, copy, uh, obviously, like the uh, link of your LinkedIn. Okay. If it's okay, I'd love to make a, a just a, a special offer or an opportunity for anybody that's listening. Uh, who, sure. Who Absolutely. So obviously, LinkedIn, LinkedIn is a great, uh, great way to reach out to me. And, and I'm, I'm a very active user, as anybody who, who follows me on LinkedIn knows. But, uh, but you know, I'd love to connect with B2B tech founders who are, who are struggling with sales, who want to sell and market to enterprise customers. Mm -hmm. And part of the launch code, which is the, the sales and marketing blueprint that I created, the first step there is to create a value proposition, mm -hmm. right? The kind of the, the, the key element of, of, of your communication strategy. And in fact, as you expand internationally, the value proposition is what you often have to reconsider and restructure. And so I've got this five-step process that, I, uh, that I've shared that you can basically create a very clear value proposition. Mm -hmm. It's the lowest hanging fruit and it's where it, it delivers a lot of results. So I just want to offer this completely free, uh, no strings attached kind of value proposition video guide. Um, to your listeners. So if they go to zoltanvardi.com slash podcast, uh, then they can access it. And it's an opportunity. It's a 30 minute video plus a worksheet and they can download it and benefit from it. And if based on that, they feel like it's worth having a further conversation, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to connect with them. Amazing. Then I can also put the link on the description of the uh, episode then. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. zoltanvardi.com slash podcast. Perfect. Thank you so much again for your time. And I guess just have to tell you until next time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to not miss the next one. And please share it with two people in your network. This is how this podcast gets more visibility and can help more of us to work on international markets. See you soon. <laughs>